Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. It is episode number 105. It is indeed. And uh, we are so pleased to have your company this week. The Hobcast Book Show is from Hobeck Books. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. Together we run the company which publishes the following four genres. Thrillers. Crime. Suspense. And mystery. Perfect. (laughs) Uh, So delighted to have your company. It's going to be a busy week for us this week. Just to mention who our guest is, though, this week, David Beckler, who is an author from the Manchester area, actually originally born in Ethiopia. I know. He's had quite an interesting life, hasn't he? As we talk about in the interview. Yeah, he's been a firefighter. He's been all sorts of things. But uh, he is now also a successful author. So looking forward to speaking to David Beckler a little later in the programme. We say it's a busy week this week because we have our first book launch of 2023. We do indeed, yes. Cut and Shut by Jonathan Peace. Yeah, the third in his DC Louise Miller series. And it is fabulous. Uh, we're going back to Osset in West Yorkshire and we're going very dark we are and in fact most of the reviewers have already said this is the best one yet he seems to get better and better with each book doesn't Um, he oh absolutely no question about it um it's it's absolutely gripping uh but it's dark and we're looking uh, forward to it yeah cut and shut by jonathan peace coming out uh, the day after this podcast so uh yeah the start of our first titles for 2023 uh, got lots of exciting ones to come. Well, we do, because I think we mentioned last week that we've been reading some of the forthcoming books. And I have just finished reading book four by um, A.B. Morgan. I read, finished it in the bath. I loved it. I think it's her best one yet. And I can't wait. To Absolutely. <laughs> we've got some, uh, well, in the near future, we'll be announcing some great news as well. Uh, of oh, a, we d- yes. Yeah, a returning favorite we can't say any more than that no we can't we were dancing around the kitchen yes we were (laughs) which we do every day anyway but absolutely (laughs) absolutely Uh, let's get into some publishing news um it's a little thin on the ground this week yeah i think overall i mean last week was full of the ooh ooh, let's look ahead to 2023 let's look back on 2022 this week there isn't very much at all um so it's a bit more light-hearted mostly most of the news um but i thought this would interest you uh-huh. Um, considering you we went to see some snooker last week. I did. Uh, Seven Dials um, are going to be publishing a book by, a memoir by Ronnie O'Sullivan, who I'd never heard of last week, but now I have heard of him, called Unbreakable. Oh, I see what they've done there. That's clever, that. <laughs> yeah, they've done Unbreakable because it's like... Is that a, what he sounds like? Yeah, he does sound a bit like that. Yeah, he, he, he does. Uh, it's, like a, it's like a slightly higher-pitched Michael Caine. He's uh, been going three decades, it says here. He's amazing. Well, he, he started off in 1992. In fact, our three players, known as the class of 1992, who have won multiple world titles between them, those being Mark Williams, John Higgins, and Rocket Ronnie O'Sullivan, who is without question 
the greatest player ever. Is uh, John Higgins related to Alex Higgins? No. no. It's just coincidence. He's Scottish. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, Rocket Ronnie is... I, I, I had the good fortune of watching him live the other day. He lost, but against Mark Williams, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, but it was unbelievable snooker. And he is a true showman in the way he plays. I mean, he plays left-handed when he feels like it. Yeah, I love that, Be, <laughs> being a bit sort of either or myself, you know. Yeah, and he has a <laughs> his very colourful background. His his dad was involved in, um, shall we say, the more exotic elements of the Soho nightlife. You mean like ladies? Well, I mean, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan grew up in, you know, playing snooker in snooker clubs in Soho where his dad was... Well, his dad did, has spent a lot of time in jail. Let's put it that way. Oh, okay. Right. So, um, is he you a know, bit of a gangster? I wouldn't wish to allege that, but <laughs> uh, that might be one way of interpreting okay. it. But um, the, 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 yeah, the fact is that Ronnie's early career was had this background of his dad being in jail the whole time, um, and uh, he he's such a compelling figure because. You know, one minute he's absolutely brilliant, the next minute he's terrible, and he's always threatening to retire. Uh, and then the next time you see him, he's winning the world title A again. A bit like um, Andy Murray, who we've been watching. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's been absolutely brilliant this week. Oh, there uh, was that one match against um, Krakenakanakis. <laughs> Tanasi Krakenakis <laughs> of Australia. Oh, we were gripped, weren't we? Oh, All yeah, of us. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. He's played amazing, amazing tennis on his metal hip. Uh, it's been brilliant. But anyway, that will be a good book. Yes. That, that will sell a lot. It comes of... out a month before your birthday. Does it? That's yes. quite early. So it's, they're hoping, I presume, because uh, the World Championships are held uh, towards the end of April, that he'll have won a world title and it'll promote book sales oh, in May. Yes, yeah, 11th of May it comes out. So yeah. Okay, we'll that's what they're that. timing it for then, lots of BBC TV coverage. Uh, but he's not playing that well at the moment, it has to be said. Um, so yeah, that's that's good. Um, now, the other memoir that everyone's talking about. I was going to say, I would like Ronnie O'Sullivan's memoir to smash the record, which was achieved <laughs> by Prince Harry's memoir this Spare. week. Yes. So um, he did. He smashed a record, which was the biggest. Oh, sorry, the fastest-selling non-fiction book since the, the beginning of Nielsen Book Scan Records. He sold. You'll find mm-hmm. this hard to believe, I think, and not one copy in this house. I have to say. 467,183 print copies, very precise, in the first week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 670,000 in the United I States. I know. So it's already made its money back, even though they paid him £20 million for the privilege. However, I would dispute, having read a very long article this morning about just how much of it is inaccurate, that you could call it non-fiction. <laughs> because yeah. there are enormous chunks of the book which do not stand up to any sort of scrutiny. And people who are described in the book coming out and saying it never happened that way, he's making it up. And actually, there's huge errors of timing and, and all sorts of things and locations. And yeah. um, well, look, I mean, ha- Prince Harry will hide behind the fact he said, oh, it's my ghostwriter who put all this stuff in. Well, yes, but he's quite a well-known ghostwriter. Oh, you know, it's he, not just some He's the world's number one ghostwriter person. who got paid a million quid to do the book. But it is, um, it's pretty shocking. I mean, there are just legions of these inaccuracies, misinterpretations, uh, exaggerations within the book. So I, I, Really, really quite dramatic ones. 
I went into months out of date. And oh, really? Stuff like that, yeah. Oh, gosh. So I went into Waterstones yesterday in Shrewsbury, and there was a huge pile as soon as you walk in the door of Harry's face, all half price. I was <laughs> I was tempted for a second or two. What, to throw rotten tomatoes <laughs> at it? <laughs> uh, oh, gosh, I'm straying into uh, Jeremy Clarkson territory there. A little. Well, look, it's going to dominate for a long time, but uh, I don't think we need to give spare any more of our time. No more spare time. No, indeed. <laughs> and our final story. Well, this is quite a nice story, I think. And I think we should try this at Hobbit Books. I don't know in which book. But um, Kate Bush um, has uh, just sold her paperback rights for her How to Be Invisible, which is a, select, a, a compendium of selected lyrics. And apparently some of the copies will have messages written in invisible ink. Do you think she'll write things like wa 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 in invisible ink? Yes, exactly that. You know, because those <laughs> wonderful lyrics of hers. <laughs> she's a legend, isn't she? I know. She, she's a, I know. I know. I'm I know. very fond but of. But if Kate you think Bush. about it, there's quite a lot of sort of noises as well as lyrics well, within her her performances. Yes, but I think that's what makes her a legend. She was able to make noises. Uh, yeah. Well, I <laughs> no. It's it's a, she is a fascinating uh, person and. I mean, her success came so early. She was spotted by, uh, I'm going to mention Pink Floyd again, David Gilmore of Pink Floyd spotted her talent, recommended her to his record company or their record company, EMI. And uh, she was only in her teens when she was first discovered. Uh, and then, of course, you know, she had all that success and then sort of basically disappeared in her mid-20s, maybe, you know, late 20s, and didn't resurface for another 20 years with any more work which is extraordinary. But when I picture Kate Bush, I always picture in that sort of fuzzy vision with yeah. dark eye, eye makeup and fuzzy hair. Yeah. Does she still look like that? Uh, no, I don't think so. But, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. She's a recluse. Uh, she did some performances at the Hammersmith Apollo, um, a few performances there uh, recently. Not so recent. Well, I mean, a couple of years ago or so. But it's, um, you know, she really is very, very reclusive. So... Uh, interesting character. Well, that 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 will be, you know, if you can get one with the invisible ink. The trouble is, how much invisible ink revealer will people be scrabbling onto their pages to see if they got a, a, a you know, one of the messages? Well, you would, wouldn't you? Because you you would want to be the one or one yeah. of the ones. And also, how does the printer do that? Because they're printed, you know, sort yeah. of like clays, probably. Do they have invisible ink? Well, we better ask them because I think we need to have an edition of our books with it. In. We do. We do indeed. Okay, let's get to our interview. Uh, we spoke to David Beckler, who is uh, a former firefighter, which always fascinates me, anyone who's been in that sort of public service. Now, he's retired from the service some years ago and has gone through many jobs, but he's now uh, a fabulous crime writer. He well. is, yes. He's a businessman. He does all sorts. Oh, yeah, as, as he'll reveal. He's sunglasses. Yeah, and, <laughs> and supplier of PPE to the NHS at one stage. It's all sorts of um, uh, things that he's been... But his his background, he was born in Ethiopia, grew up there for the first eight years of his life, Yeah, and uh, then moved to the UK and uh, has had a life in service, really, for the public. Um, and it's that experience of working alongside, you know, your colleagues in very, very difficult circumstances that inspires quite a lot of his work. His two main characters uh, in his novels are uh, former Royal Marines, and um, that camaraderie is at the core of the stories. But yeah. let, let's uh, let David himself explain how he got to that point. David Beckler. 
Thank you so much for joining us, David Beckler, from your home in Manchester. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I'm uh, really looking forward to having a good chat with you too. Fantastic. That's what everybody says. Yeah, well, they, they do until they get to the random question, but we'll, we'll, wait, we'll wait a good time for, for that. You've got plenty of time to worry about it. Let's, let's get to it then with your, your career, and let's go to the origins of when you started writing. I mean, what, what, what inspired you? Because you've had a, a very active career. You've been a firefighter. Uh, what stage of your life did you decide that, that writing was for you too? I started, I was about 50, and it was more of a, a bit of a challenge from my partner because I was, I was, I'd read a book and I just said to her, I'm, sh- I'm sure I can write something like this. And she said, well, go on then. So I just started writing uh, evenings after work when I had a bit of spare time. It took me about 18 months to finish the first novel. Which still hasn't been published. A lot of people say that. They say they wrote yeah. a novel, but they haven't they've put it in the drawer and then moved on to other things and never done anything with the very first one. Exactly. Yeah. I mean I am quite stubborn, so I, I'm determined to publish it, but it just needs so much work. And it's going to be book five of my first series. It will come out eventually. I've just got to write books three and four. <laughs> right. So that that's your first series is the Mason and Sterling series. That's correct, yeah. Adam uh, Sterling's a firefighter, so I didn't have to do a huge amount of research to get his character right. And that's been, uh, I started that, that was the first series I wrote, and the first two novels have been published, and they've been out a few years now. But I've then moved on to a more uh, political thriller. And those are the Antonia Conti series? That's right, yeah. Right, um, which are currently published by Thomas and Mercer, uh, a.k.a. Amazon, which is fantastic to uh, to be picked up by them. Yeah, because they can do amazing things for an author career. They can, yeah. And uh, um, I'm a member of the Crime Writers Association, and we obviously chat about our publishers and uh, how we're getting on. Um, and most most authors have got gripes about their publishers, but the <laughs> one the one I heard the fewest gripes about was Thomas and Mercer, which surprised me really, because as a big company, Amazon's got a reputation for being difficult to deal with but as the publishers they've been fantastic really i'm not just saying it because i'm with them now but they everything they've done has been excellent you know i've got no complaints the editing's been a dream really and the only areas where they they're quite prescriptive is the the titles and the covers and that's obviously title and cover is a big marketing thing and that's their expertise so I'm happy for them to do that as long as the words inside the covers are mine and and they are so that's that's great fantastic mm. um so that journey uh, into right i mean you've got your first novel sat in the drawer at some point <laughs> it'll become published how difficult was it that first uh, foray into writing because i mean 18 months is pretty quick actually for yeah, the first novel yeah. i would say some people say like 10 years <laughs> do they all right well um, um once i get into a book, I can I can write fairly quickly. And the the, the first one that was published, I, I finished the first draft in uh, about five weeks. But at the time, I was running a, a sunglasses business, and at, at times of the year, it's fairly quiet. So I was I was virtually writing full time when I did that. It was in a lull between uh, between the summer and uh, the delivery of next season sunglasses. You know. So yeah, I mean, I, I can write fairly quickly when I when I need to. In fact, Amazon only gave me three months to write book three in this series. And that was to not just the first draft. I had to produce quite a reasonably polished manuscript. So, yeah. And is that while working full time as well? 
Yeah, actually, I, I, yeah, I started a new business uh, after after lockdown. My, my sunglasses business just dried up because I was supplying uh, supermarkets and department stores, and obviously when they shut, they just stopped selling stuff. And I could see issues with getting containers and delivery costs and dealing with China, which is where most sunglasses are made. So I looked for something else. So I just started a new business and it was just taking off at the same time. So I didn't get a lot of sleep, but it was worth it. Wow. Uh, and you met, you managed to meet the deadline? I did, yeah. yeah. Well done. <laughs> That's quite tight. We <laughs> no, should, it's, I mean, you know, we, 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 we're not that demanding, are we? No, we're, nothing like. No, I think I'm too soft sometimes because when when one of our also says, "Oh, I need a bit more time," I say, "That's fine, take your time." Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I'd have got more time if I needed it, but um, I just I work I work a lot better towards deadlines. You know, when I've got months ahead of me, I sort of I amble along and I think oh, I'll just check social media for a bit and uh, then I'll uh, make a sandwich and a cup of tea and. Uh, Whereas if I've got a deadline, I'm, <laughs> I'm what, sat there. Uh, what the audience need to know is that Rebecca has started pointing at me for some reason. <laughs> and I have absolutely no idea why. No, you don't, do you? No. You're too busy checking social media and making a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about the two series then. I mean, the, the original series and the dynamic between your, your characters, because they're both ex-Royal Marines. And that's something that always pricks my ears up, because... As Rebecca will tell you, I will watch anything involving the Royal Marines uh, repeatedly. Uh, and the most impressive of all of the documentaries I've ever watched about them was the one where, I don't know if you've seen it, um, Chris Terrell, who is a filmmaker, aged 55, became the oldest man to pass all four commando tests while making a film about the Royal Marines, which is extraordinary to push himself to the limit. And he's the man who's making uh, for... British viewers, the new series about uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth, which comes out next week. But anyway, I digress. But I, I find them absolutely fascinating as an organisation, as a unit. Have you spent any time with the Royal Marines in research? Um, no, I haven't. Um, um, my best mate was was in the Royal Marines for nine years. So I used to get a lot of uh, information from him. And the, the, the fire service training is is based on... I mean, obviously, we don't shoot anybody, but uh, it's based on the the basic training is based on on uh, Royal Marines training. Wow, I never so, knew I that. That's, that's, I didn't know that. That's, that's extraordinary because the level of fitness. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if being a firefighter, you have, you have to, to be, fit, but but, but the level of fitness that they're driven to is is so you're being trained along the same lines. Then. Yeah, you are. Yeah, uh, it's something I don't think is as, as intense. Uh, and on my course, there were five instructors and two were ex-Royal Marines. So they, they gave us an insight on what, what would be required. And they, they they let us know that what we were doing was nowhere near as, as tough as... <laughs> as it, was, it was on the same principles, you know. So you, you get an idea of, of, of how it works. And the camaraderie is the same. You know, you, you got, you're, you're relying on... Obviously, when I left the fire service in 20, uh, 2001 and through most of my career, it was, it was always just by men. So all the crews I worked with were all male. So it's a very similar sort of dynamic, team dynamic. You know, you're relying on other people. They're relying on you. You don't want to let each other down. And you, you go, you know, when you, when you go through some difficult times, it does, does give you a, a strong bond there. Absolutely. And, and it's an interesting dynamic around those public services at the moment. I mean, clearly there are lots of, 
problems in terms of funding and pay and all those sort of things which are reflecting in the strikes that have been happening and you know quite understandably but in terms of the way that culture of such organizations has changed it's been quite dramatic in the sense that as you say uh, it's no longer necessarily all male squads of firefighters working at particular stations and also there is a lot more awareness now i think than there was then of the mental health impacts of the things that you do and the risks that you've taken and the things that you no doubt have witnessed. So um, does that reflect in your work in terms of the, the way that your characters are behaving in the books or is it, uh, or, or, or is it sort of set further back in a, in a, in a time that you remember? It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it, the, um, the latest I've got to is 2002. So it's roughly the time when I was working um, so the the procedures are are the same as they were when I was working. Uh, things have changed quite a lot, and obviously in Greater Manchester, which is where I, I last served, um, the number of uh, firefighters has dropped from something like twenty two hundred to thirteen hundred. So there's big wow. changes. Um, and where I used to, well, where I last worked, we had a, a crew of uh, sixteen, and now there's seven. Wow, Seven. gosh. <laughs> yeah, so we, we used to have two fire engines and a hydraulic platform, which is a, a an access vehicle, which used to go up to about 95 feet. Um, and now they've just got the one fire engine. Blimey. Um, for, the same, for the same area. Yeah, so I think the job's changed a lot, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's it is. I mean, it's something that's always fascinated because, I mean, I was a journalist uh, in Brighton and obviously a lot of the day-to-day stuff would be i'd be paged uh you know carried a pager in those days the mobile mm-hmm. rubbish <laughs> uh, phone the office and they'd send me out to whatever overnight fire somewhere in the sussex area and you you, yeah. you, know, you got to see but also of course the other thing that that firefighters do which is uh probably a, a more regular shout what rescue kittens from trees? no 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 no, no. Oh. i mean talking about road traffic accidents and the cutting gear that you have um again something that is uh, you know, actually, probably in some ways starker than some of the fires that we do, you would attend. I mean, it has always fascinated me um, the sort of mentality and the incredible professionalism. When I used to go on on a shout out to you know whatever fire, and then the, the commander would be so erudite and clear about what they were doing, and it was just extraordinary how uh, organised and you know impressively professional everything was. But they have to be, don't they? Well, yeah, but mm. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to say that it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it is amazing to witness. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, I think most most fire services do a good job of, uh, of training their staff. I mean, one of the things is you, by the time you finish your recruits course, you, you, you know enough to not be a danger to your colleagues, but then you learn the proper stuff when you're on a station, and and the, you're taught by your colleagues and the junior officers and in most in most cases they do a good job they do a really good job yeah um yeah it's, it's fascinating the, the other thing i was going to say about that side of things is uh i remember being sent very my probably the first thing i ever got sent out professionally to go and report on was at castle coombe motor racing circuit in Swin- near swindon right where they were um now I'm trying to remember which which fire uh, truck company it was, but they were showing off uh, a new 
vehicle that could handle uh, taking speed bumps <laughs> um, and not rolling too badly. And the other thing it could do was take corners better. So right. this thing was actually going round the circuit over speed bumps at you know, some ridiculous speed, trying to sell itself into. It was a Dennis, yeah. Of course, it would be. Right. Uh, right. Um, so yeah, again, you know, it, it, it's these things you take for granted, but when you, you you learn about the technology that's involved and the thoughts that go into trying to cope with the conditions that you guys face, it's it's it's, it's, it's there's a lot of uh, a lot of effort goes into that. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I and mean, the um, development of new machines is a key area now because they're looking at reducing crewing and technology is having to take take the strain yeah funnily enough actually when Swindon was was my first posting I joined uh, yeah yeah before I moved up to Manchester um three uh, three years in Wiltshire and uh, 16 years in Manchester yeah what's the contrast like between you know, largely rural area like Wiltshire and, and, and Greater Manchester? Well, uh, when I went to Manchester, they sent me to Moss Side, and Moss Side did oh, more fireballs than the whole of Wiltshire. <laughs> <laughs> that well, happened yeah. to me. <laughs> Moss Side has a certain <laughs> reputation for those who don't know it. <laughs> it was, it, it was uh, quite a rude awakening, yeah. Yeah. And and I've got to ask, I mean, that thing about, you know, because I used to attend shouts in bits of Brighton that were a bit rougher than perhaps others. And yeah. that actually quite a lot of the effort had to be to protect the equipment from yeah. interference from the locals. Well, Is that the case in Mossack? Well, no, I mean, yeah, to vandalise or, you know, even on one occasion, I went to, to a shout, which was at the Lewis Bonfire Festival. And the fire brigade obviously were, were uh, Sussex uh, fire brigade were, deployed because anything can happen given that there are three-year-olds carrying flaming torches like something out of uh you know a 16th century horror movie and it um and anything can happen the fireworks being let off willy-nilly in the street but um they had to have a cordon of police around the, the vehicles to protect protect them from being vandalized i found it extraordinary yeah i mean it, it does happen my side wasn't too bad actually there's, there's quite a community Good community spirit, uh, and the, it was. I joined Mossad just after the riot, so it was still a bit of unrest. But there was a lot of good goodwill towards the fire service. Um, the, the biggest problem we we encountered was after the Strangeways riot, and uh, yeah. uh, because there were rumours that the fire service were involved in in getting the guys off the roof, um, and we were. But obviously, these rumours take hold, um, and we used to get. Yeah, we used to get attacked quite often. Uh, in fact, one of the crews I was with got uh, shot at. Really? Gosh. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it can it can be a bit hairy, but um, we always had uh, lockable lockers. <laughs> right. Just in case, just in case. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, given that experience, being in that in that close knit team, how much does that you know uh, drive the, the the thrust of you know the relationships in within those books? Well, in the uh, yeah, in the Sterling Mason series, it was yeah, it's, it's key. I mean, the, the relationship between Adam and, and Byron um, is um, what drives the, the whole uh, series, um, and their uh, willingness to to do anything really to help each other out. That's that's the key to uh, how the stories work. Yeah, and in terms of that dynamic over the over the series, I mean, have you? Has it broken down that relationship at any time under strain, or has that always been that that solid bond between them? 
Am I going to give away the? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the but I think what you're board. saying though is yeah. essentially it's the the relationship between the characters, which is an important driving force in the book. Yeah. It is, yeah, and um, it comes under strain, yeah, definitely. Uh, but Just like any relationship. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Um, but so far, no, they're not they're not broken down yet. Yeah, uh, and actually, they they appear in. Uh, in my second series. Oh, right. Oh, that's good. I like it when things like that happen. In book, <laughs> in book two, which is coming out on uh, Thursday this week, um, Adam has quite a, um, an important minor minor role in that. Um, and Byron appears a, a bit more in the background. So was that a deliberate choice? Did you think, oh, I want to bring them in? Or did that... that just well, I, I, needed, I needed a firefighter. Uh, because my main character Antonio was involved in a in a uh, car crash, and he's he's in charge of the crew that that rescues her. Uh, so he's, he's twenty years older than in the other books. Um, so he's he's nearing retirement. Oh, but, uh, a gnarled <laughs> veteran by this point, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. He's still, he's still yeah, so we're talking about uh, the release of a stolen memory then, uh, which comes out on Thursday, uh, the yeah. second of your uh, Antonia Conti. So that'll be out release. by the time this podcast goes out. It'll be published. Yeah, yes, it will. Yeah. 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 How, how excited do you get now for a book release? Given you've had a few out, um, does it does it still fill you with with excitement or, or fear? Or what, are you still open the champagne? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a combination. Yeah, you you, you celebrate obviously because it's, it's it's great to to get your book out there. Um, you, you also feel a bit apprehensive, you know, whether people will like it as much as they liked the last one or or as much as they didn't like the last one. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a combination. And also the feeling, well, maybe this is where I got found out. <laughs> Imposter really syndrome. Yeah, that's everybody has that, don't they? They always they always have this worry. However many books you've written or however experienced you are, or even if you've had mostly five-star reviews, you still have that sort of niggling, I'm not worthy feeling. Yeah, I mean, it, you, yeah, you just think, well, maybe uh, it's, you know, people are just being nice, you know, maybe my publisher was being nice when she said she really liked it. And, uh, but you, you know, that it's, it's, it wouldn't be published if, if it was, if it was rubbish, you know, so. Yeah, uh, no. And it's, it's very normal to have that. And I think it would be strange if you just thought, no, I'm fantastic. <laughs> well, you t- I think you, you find that the, the people who get to that stage sort of start to go downhill then. You know, mm. I think you need you need self doubt to to keep you sharp and make sure that you're, you're putting your best your best effort into every book. Absolutely, and also you you if you continually want to improve as well, so you always see there's room for improvement, and then you will because you you see that. And yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, whenever I read my earlier books, um, not that I go around reading them, but I was I was converting one into a, a screenplay and I was reading it and I was thinking, oh, God, I, I wish I could change this, I wish I could change that. You know, so it, it is a, a case of continual improvement, I think, you know, and you, you look at uh, some of the big authors like my night Ian Rankin, his, he didn't really get into his stride with Drebus until like book seven, you know, um, yes. it takes a while to, and, and especially when you've got a serious character um, or characters, they evolve, and they, uh, and you, you you discover more things about them, which is to non a non writer just seems strange that you've actually made that 
you made that person up, but you're still discovering things about them because you've you you can't just say this is what the character will do. As you write them, you you find out that that doesn't seem right. You know that that that, that actor wouldn't behave that way because of other things they've done in the past. So that's I mean to me that's a good that's a, a nice problem to have when I'm trying to write a, a scene and I think actually that doesn't feel right because because of other stuff that's, that character's done but mm. it does it does tell you that you've actually got a proper real person rather than a, a cipher yeah they're so not a character are they they could be a real person because they they can make their own decisions based on their experiences and their personality which you've created but the more developed they are they have more agency in a way. This sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? No, but, but it's what it's what Anne Coates was saying last week about the golden thread. The you know this this extraordinary thing that happens when you're writing, where a character will actually pull you up and say, "Uh, uh-uh, ain't going to happen that way. It, <laughs> yeah. It's just it doesn't fit." You know, I'm, I I would do this, not that. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's, it, like I say, it's a, it is a bit of a problem because then you've got to try and replot it, but it's. It's a, it's a nice problem. Yeah, you, you yeah. Know, it is. It is. I like that though that you had a plan and then your character saying no, I wouldn't do that. So you think, oh, let's start again. Yeah, hopefully, come up with a better one. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and let, let, let's just focus on the the theme of and 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 the plot sort of device of your your latest book. So, um, in a stolen memory, uh, you've got a, a sort of a mysterious company, uh, GRM, who are uh, this is set in the near future. They've introduced a program to alter prisoners' memories, removing those that led to their criminal behaviour. And uh, Antonia Conti, we've been talking about, is a journalist, and she decides to investigate. And it sort of cascades into, yeah, people trying to stop her from finding out the truth. Which is, you know, we've, we've, we've. Funny enough, we were working with an author on something not dissimilar, in, in fact, in terms of how technology can be implanted, and uh, you know, th- this is. This is a, a, a near, it's not happening yet, but people are working towards it. And this is obviously a lot more, uh, perhaps, a darker purpose behind that use of technology. So when you came up, with, when when did you come up with that idea and, and what inspired it? It's quite a long time ago, actually. I, mean, I wrote the first Antonio Conti book in uh, 2014, uh, and it was sort of dystopian set in the future. Uh, but um, by the time I was writing book three, I was having to ramp up the corruption and, dy- and <laughs> the dystopia to, to uh, match what's, what's already happened. The, the memory thing, yeah, I mean, it's something I've always been interested in. And about five years ago, I was outlining books two, three, and four for the series. And I thought that was, that was one. Because Antonia is, is, is haunted by her memories. And it's a... Achilles' heel, really. In, uh, in in book one, she's put under a lot of physical uh, stress, and we discover how tough she is. But in book two, she's being attacked through uh, her Achilles' heel, and she has a, a much harder time. So I thought I thought it'd be a good way to to uh, show her vulnerability. Mm. Mm, yeah. pe- people do like that don't they when a character although they are very strong character and have been through some quite difficult situations but then you know having that sort of vulnerability where they have to fight even more than normal 
and then they're rooting for them. The readers are rooting, really rooting yeah. for them. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously every, everyone's vulnerable in, in some way or other, and it's uh, and obviously their enemies are trying to identify that, and they themselves need to be aware of where they're weak so that they can be um, buttressed against against their, any attacks. Uh, but you know, a lot of the 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 uh, um, the three novels uh, cover uh, corruption, which is something that I'm I'm pretty uh, keen that we 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 become more aware of, and we have done obviously over the last couple of years because it's become much more open. But mm -hmm. when, I, when I wrote the first novel, um, corruption wasn't considered to be a huge problem in this country uh, because it was you, you don't get you know, a policeman stopping you for speeding and then taking a 50 quid note to let you off and you don't get officials, minor officials asking for money so that they can uh, expedite your application for something, you know, uh, and the corruption we've we've had in this country has always been at the top level and it's been much less, when we did have the, the brown envelopes at the Ritz in the in the late late 80s, early 90s, but um, it's it's a lot it's a lot more sort of back scratching and uh, you know not in a wink and I'll do you a favor if you do me a favor, uh, but it's still corruption. It's still it's absolutely still oh, totally. And what amuses me is we just watch it as if we're watching TV and let them get away with it to, to an extent. Yeah, it does appear that way, doesn't it? But I think it's an interesting thing that you know you you were sort of you know as an author a bit of a canary in the coal mine. You know, your people have said to you, you know, this is too far fetched. It never happens. But actually you've been proven right mm. and you're aware of what goes on um and does that is that side of your writing you know that in in a sense you, you're, you're writing a thriller it's an adventure it's you know you want people to be turning the page uh racing on to the next chapter and all of that but does that um political point or the, the sort of moral point you're making within those books is that one of the driving forces behind what you write yeah, I mean, I think I think it is in every crime novel, isn't it? You know, uh, I mean, most crime novels ad address a moral point, and uh, that. But it's it's it, the 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 story really is the characters. To me, that's the most important part of any book I'm reading. If the characters are great and I'm really enjoying being with them, it might be might not be brilliantly plotted, but you're you're there with the characters. Um, yes. I mean, I focus on, on the characters first and then the, the plot and the action and then the the political and moral view is is reflected in, in the actions of the characters. The characters are the moral drivers and they behave in the way they do because because of their the moral imperative that they, they feel. Um, and... If, if they didn't feel that, then it, it would feel it would be an artificial construct. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, so it almost makes it more authentic because it comes from the characters themselves, as opposed to you as an author imposing a political message, but the characters yeah, I mean, are driving it. Yeah, I mean, when you say political message, it's political with a small p, really. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah. You know, they're. Uh, to me, I mean, politics is is everyday life. Everything is a, is is political. You know, whether people are starving on the streets or people have got, you know, um, the right to protest, things like that. Um, and to me, the important thing is that the characters believe what they believe, rather than 
you you're trying to get them to do stuff which is what was, we were saying before about a character will behave in a way that you hadn't intended um and it might it might show a you know a weakness in in their personality or, or a strength in their personality that you weren't aware of um which will add to the depth of the story mm. Mm, absolutely I, I i wanted to ask you about you know over the arc of your career in the sense of going back to the craft uh where would you say that you feel you know you were talking about i sometimes go back to my old books or, or whatever where do you think you've improved most as a writer do you think um i think i've, I've improved the most in uh um probably trying to create tension and um excitement without having too much action you know i think i think um in my, my there's there's a lot of action in my books but i can sort of ramp up the tension now just by hinting at something that's happening rather than making it happen yeah i think that's a very important point isn't it because sometimes it's often about the implications of things or um what you're not saying can say just as much as what you are saying yeah yeah i mean i think it was hitchcock who said that if you uh if you have a, a bomb under a table and it goes off you've got 10 seconds of action but if you've got a bomb under a table and the two characters don't know that it's there but the audience does you've got 20 minutes of tension yeah good I like it, that. It, it's like it's the, you have the old trope of you know you introduce a gun at some point in the foot in an opening scene or something you've got to make sure there's a payoff with that gun towards the end of the book or whatever because otherwise all the scene... it was Chekhov, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah yeah right yeah you're quite right so no, that's fascinating and and i, I noticed that you, you know you were um a, a guest on a panel with nw craven recently at capital crime yeah. um i mean in terms of your author profile and 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 you know um uh do you do many of those sort of events? Have you? Have, is it was that was that a new? Th- well, uh, that was my first one actually, and it was the, oh, the day first of many, hopefully. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, it was the, the day before um, my um, Antonio Conti book was published. So it was uh, yeah, I was I was on it with uh, him and and uh, Sean Cosby as well, who is a, a fantastic author, really. I mean, it, yeah, uh, it couldn't have been a, a more high profile panel for me as a as a newbie. You know, I'm sure people are saying. Yeah, we know those two. Who's that guy? You know? <laughs> Not at all. But yeah, and uh, it was it was a great experience. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I, I did one at uh, Newcastle Noir. Oh well, yeah, that was really good. Um, and we, we had a really good laugh. That was about uh, dystopian uh, fiction, um, but I didn't realise it could be so much fun. <laughs> it it is. Just, it's a lot. I mean, we go to lots to laugh of the battles, whole time. don't we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, well, I'm, I'm planning to go to um, the Big Four in the UK, which is uh, like Crown Fest in Bristol, Harrogate, uh, bloody Scotland, and then back to Capital, Capital Crime. Time, yeah. So well, we might get to meet you then because we 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 will certainly imagine, be attending at least two or three yeah, of those, I should think. Harrogate and Crime Fest. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch and uh, we'll meet up. Uh, <laughs> we'd love to. We'd love to. <laughs> no, it, it's it's terrific. So it's, you know, it's so exciting to speak to an author in the week they're they're being published. Yeah, which, and also yeah, <laughs> it, it really is. Um, and so going forwards, 
what what's yeah what's that? I mean, clearly uh, there's an appetite. Thomas and Mercer want book three, and 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 you're working uh, you know towards that. Have you got any other series in 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 your mind, or uh, is it strengthening the two existing ones? Well, I've got um, I've got a fourth book in the Antonio Conti series, which is um, being outlined, and I'm, I've got ideas for book five, but um, obviously I've not I've not been signed up for those yet. Um, I'm working on my next uh, uh, Mason and Sterling book, which, uh, as, as I mentioned before, book five is already written. But uh, <laughs> so not in the door. I'm working on book three. Um, and that's partly set in the south of France, so I'm going to have to do a bit of a research trip. Oh, uh, hardship. <laughs> I know. I know it's, it's, but you've got to do it to get the authenticity. Um, yeah. And I'm working on another one set in Manchester, which um, um, hopefully I'll, I'll get that finished by probably April. Fantastic. Wow, you're very busy. <laughs> well, it's one. Yeah. It's been great. I mean, let's um, let's put you under real stress though i mean we know you've you've faced many stressful situations in your in your previous roles but this could could tip you this is the point where we go to the random question so i'm going to do the voice and then rebecca will hit you with the toughest question in british podcasting here we go rebecca's random question (laughs) okay so we've established you live in manchester and that's related to the question I'm going to give you a choice of two alternate careers that you could have pursued. One is rock guitar star, and the other is uh, player for Manchester United. What would you choose and why? Um, I would choose to be a footballer, yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan of football. And obviously in Manchester, you have to know how the two teams are doing. So this week it's uh, United's on the up. <laughs> He's a United fan. Right. Um, yeah, a, a professional sportsman. I, I, I was a keen rugby player. Um, I, and it would have been, yeah, to, to be able to play professionally um, would have been quite a... Uh, quite. A okay, big... so would it have been... Okay, here's the choice then. Would it be Salford Reds or Sale Sharks? What's that? It's Union or League. league yeah, league. yeah. Oh, yeah, rugby, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would be Union. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I, I learned uh, my rugby down in uh, the West Country, so in Bristol. Ah. So, yeah, we, we didn't have a league down there. No, absolutely <laughs> not. We have a league as well. But... Well, it's funny you say that because I did actually play rugby. My only game of rugby league uh, was playing for Exeter University, so down oh, right. in the southwest. Uh, oh. And we got, uh, unfortunately, it was against Loughborough. Uh, oh, our, no. our, our number one uh, and we were rubbish I mean we were oh, against left bro yeah I mean, anyone come on. Be. I mean I was not a fit student and I was I don't know I, I was just making up my numbers it was a disaster I was actually there to report on it and that's, right. that's the funny thing is that, that they were down <laughs> sure. on numbers they could they could only field 12 so I had to put the kit on and, and, and go and represent my university which is the only time I was ever invited to do any sport for for Exeter but um yeah uh yeah. sorry well done for surviving. Well, God, I mean, yeah, there wasn't much left of me at the end of it. But um, you're still here. But I did enjoy, <laughs> I did enjoy the sensation in rugby league of uh, having been tackled, trying to get the uh, the ball away to my, uh, you know, uh, to the to the to the guys and the rest of the team. Mm. Um, you know, but I, I didn't touch the ball a lot. Has to be said, it was more sort of flailing as someone charged past me from Loughborough. But oh, no, that's an interesting thing. So yeah, sell sharks. So what would you pick, rock star or? Um... Well, we. 
Yeah, we were thinking about this last so I did, night. I did actually ask him the question last night, but I said tennis, ace, or rock star. Yeah, yeah. because I'm passionate about tennis, but I think <laughs> uh, rock star because the aches and pains are, you know, of, of tennis. Four and a half hours in a five-set Grand Slam match. Uh, there wouldn't be much left of me, I don't think. You know, bad enough if I've had 20 minutes on the court. If you were a professional tennis player, you'd be able to cope, wouldn't you? Well, you'd think so. But then look at Andy Murray. He had to have two new hips. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it takes its toll. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think the rock star thing, yeah, you're more of a rock star than a tennis star, yeah. There we go. What about you, love? Um, I think rock star too. I quite like the idea of being on stage and with my guitar, and yeah, it's it's funny thing, you know, (laughs) we're both quite introverted, and yet put us on a stage, we love it, yeah, I do. It's just weird, yeah, yeah. Put me in a room full of people and tell me to mingle, no thanks. That's scary, just, but... just want to spotlight on you and, and nobody else. Yeah, then a bit of that. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Well, they, they do say quite a lot of uh, big uh, big name actors are introverts. Yes, uh, mm. they like this the spotlight. That is that's very true. I mean, whenever you get, I mean, I, I've been you know my journalism career. I've met a few, and this is where everyone rolls their eyes and you drop name drop. But when <laughs> when you meet, I mean, someone like. Rowan Atkinson is a really good example of someone who is an incredible performer, but the most introverted, almost monosyllabic person yeah. to speak to. He really, even though he's very, very erudite when you finally get him moving, to actually get him over that that hump of wishing to talk to you. Right. Uh, and I'm talking about this in a motor racing context because he, he owns loads and loads of fabulous uh, vintage racing cars and goes around the world you know, demonstrating them. But you yeah. try and grab grab him in a paddock to talk to him, it's, you know, you get, you know, absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose if you're acting the part of somebody else, you can pretend it's nothing to do with you, whereas you, you don't want to, you don't want to uh, reveal too much of your own personal... Yeah. Mm. No, I think that's what it is. I mean, my, my middle son is, is like, he's deadly quiet, but he loves acting. <laughs> Does he? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he's great. I mean, acting great. It's lucky that he's able to do it because uh, a lot of uh, schools don't don't do it anymore, do they? Yeah, it's uh, under it's tremendous pressure. The yeah. arts. I mean, you know, again, don't want to get too political, but you know, the suggestion that you can push maths to eighteen for everybody, and yet the arts wither on the vine. Well, his, his school, so he's doing A level art at the moment, and his is the right. last year that they're going to offer A level art at school yeah. and music as well. They're going, they're going to stop A level music. It's just yeah. nuts. <laughs> In my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was a mathematician, really. I mean, I was, I was pushed. I wanted to do maths and history and physics, and I was just pushed to, to do double maths. And uh, yeah. so, I, and I did engineering. It's, 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 so, I, mean, I, I recognise the value of maths, but I also recognise the value of the arts. You know, I mean, I'm, I work in the arts now, and mm, you're uh, an artist now. Things like music and uh, performing. Acting, they're, they're just great for your confidence and great. They, they give you great skills, which are completely transferable. Um, I know, and I know we we do need more mathematicians, but we don't need people who aren't interested in maths being forced to do it because mm-hmm. they will never become your top mathematicians that we need to evolve and develop our our technology you know what we should be doing is identifying the ones who are good at maths and who really want to do it and giving them the opportunity to become as good as they can be uh you know they reckon that mathematicians at their peak at like 17 or 18 you know 
Uh, so it, it's 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 I think it's it's misguided, you know. It's it's a good idea, but it's the wrong way of doing it. Well, I think it. maybe don't just you know focus on maths. I mean, you know, if you want to improve the opportunities across the board then just change the system so that you know it doesn't get narrowed down to three subjects necessarily mm-hmm. um but that's I mean, that anyway. takes a lot of investment right well we, we, <laughs> we, we digress and we, we, we solve we, the education uh, problems yeah there you go the question should have been if you were education minister what would you do but uh, it wasn't it wasn't plenty <laughs> but um, uh, my partner used to be a teacher so yeah. uh, well i used to be a governor so <laughs> I've got a bit of a, you know, I was a governor, but I was a governor. Uh, David, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And we really do wish you every success with the latest book and indeed all your future future, projects. In the future, yes. And we'll meet you at Harrogate and Crime Fest hopefully this year. Yeah, definitely. I've I've already booked the accommodation for Harrogate and Crime Fest. So (laughs) So, we better get wriggle on then, haven't we? And when you get too drunk, uh, Rebecca, then we know somebody who can um, basically (laughs) give you a a fireman's carry home. Well, if I get stuck <laughs> up a tree, it's not very comfortable actually. <laughs> the climber's lift is not very comfortable for the person being carried. No, but it's they not. Don't usually, they don't usually complain. Um, no. but I mean, but, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to both of you, and uh, good luck with your venture. And I'm hoping uh, to see you either Harrogate or or Bristol. We'll we'll see you both probably. That would be wonderful. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. Lovely to speak to David Beckler. We wish him all the best with the new book. Absolutely. Out this week. Any future writing ventures he goes into? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we will be speaking to next week... The People from Plotter. That's about all we know at the moment. Yes. They're based in the US. Yes. Well, Plotter is a software system. It's similar to Scrivener for you authors out there. But this one is slightly different. Well, quite considerably different. I'm going to be playing with it before we speak to them. because it gives you uh, the option to download a sort of framework for each genre mm. uh, and then work to that. So that is quite a useful feature, I think. But yeah. I'd be interested to know what other features it brings to the table. Well, they claim, because I, I, when, when I was talking to them, I said, you, you do realise you're going to be talking to two complete pantsers in life. Mm. And they said, oh, well, you know, we, we can help you. We can even help the complete pantsers of the world. Uh, right. Is that something that sounds like a Smith song? <laughs> yes. Panthers of the world unite. We've had, I think we've had a, the majority of our recent guests have been Panthers, have they not? Do you think? I think so, yeah. yes, actually. It's interesting you say that, but you're right. I think recently we've had a lot of Panthers, not so right. many plotters. Well, maybe we'll, maybe in future episodes we'll be balancing that, that, <laughs> that, that, that particular equilibrium a little bit better. Uh, but anyway, it has been such a pleasure to speak to you. Don't forget to go to our website, www hobeck.net to see more about our authors about our audiobooks and uh, oh yeah or to mention that you know one of the exciting things that happened in the last week or so is that i got an email out of the blue asking me to do some more audiobooks <laughs> which is fantastic so i'm heading back into the roman empire you're going from transformational selling to the roman empire yes i'm doing something called the transformational seller for some clients of ours uh, which is a business book, as you might have gathered, and then going back into the Roman Empire. In fact, today, just now, I was driving along, dropping my son off at university, listening to one of my former performances. You were? For any reason? Well, just to get the voices back. Oh. Because I'm going back to be with P- Legionary Parvo, or Optio Parvo, as he's been promoted by the time I finish the last book. 
and uh, Quadratus and uh, a few of the others. Um, How about... Um, yes. Gallus. Gallus. <laughs> Gallus. I had a complete mental blank then, yeah. Yeah, and I've got to get, got to get all my accents back. You do. I mean, I'm looking forward to it because you tend to bring your accents to your daily life. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I'll sound like Gallus demanding, He'll... you know, come on, men. You know, that sort well, of thing. Come on, wife. Well, I'm not your wife yet. But... No, no. Nor shall you be. Um, you, know. you heard it here first. Well, you know, in the legionary books, uh, Parvo's love life is, is always torn asunder by murderous plotters. So uh, really looking forward to doing those again. But uh, it was a lovely offer from WF House, the biggest audiobook producer in the country. It'll keep him busy for a couple of yeah, months. It yeah, well, I, <laughs> well, until Ronnie O'Sullivan's book comes out, probably. <laughs> um, if I'm honest, it, it, it's going to be quite a challenge. But uh, looking forward to that. And... Uh, of course, as we mentioned earlier, Jonathan Peace's Cut and Shut is the first Hobeck new book of 2023, available from our website, available from Amazon, and uh, can't recommend it highly enough. If you haven't read the f- previous two, uh, please go and seek those out. Yeah, and pre-order. I mean, it's only a day, but, you know. <laughs> That's uh, Dirty Little Secret and From Sorrow's Hold. And, of course, we have many, many other wonderful crime, thriller, mystery and suspense books for your perusal and for your enjoyment here at Hobart Books. But from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. And all it remains for us to say is, of course, have a wonderful and... Snowy. And creative week. (laughs) Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobart Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobart.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.